What? Hello? Can you still hear me? Hi, everyone. This is MC Owens. If you'd like to support the Lotus Underground and these Dharma transmissions, please consider becoming a Patreon member. You can go to patreon.com backslash mcowens or follow the links at lotusunderground.com. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the... This is another MCOMs transmission. Hello. Okay. Um, so welcome. Um, it, for those that weren't here last week, and even if you were here last week, uh, it won't hurt to review. Um, the Dharma talks that I'm doing uh, this month are about these um, called uh, formless realms. The Arupa Dhyanas, Arupa Dhyanas. And these are sort of four deep meditative states focused on kind of four different things. But before we get into those, I want to revisit again the, the idea of dhyana meditation. Someone after last Dharma talk asked me a question about vipassana versus shamatha, the calming down, and about this, the, uh, you know, infinite space, infinite consciousness, all of this is this vipassana. And it, if you don't know that word vipassana, it's kind of insight meditation versus shamatha, which is calming meditation. And if you don't know this about Buddhism, what makes Buddhism unique is that it's sort of actually a, a two-fold system of meditation. One aspect of it is calming, like we just did. So just just calming down, actually trying not to do anything, actually trying not to think about anything, and ultimately actually not trying to feel anything, right? Just stillness, right? And at the time of the Buddha, up until today, that is a very valuable practice, the calming down. But what makes Buddhism unique is that Buddhism says that this sort of grand state of nirvana or liberation or, you know, moksha, all these words, all these ideas for this idea of liberation, from the Buddhist point of view, shamatha or the calming is, is one necessary aspect. But there's this other aspect, which is insight, which is actually like considering some stuff, thinking about it, putting some things together. I like to think of these as actually passive and active meditation, shamatha being absolutely passive, literally as passive as you can get, right? And then the vipassana is actually an active mode where the mind actually re-engages, right? And... Usually what Vipassana is, is this sort of like, kind of, kind of almost like analysis in a way, but it's like peeling back the layers of your mind. So in a calm state, after having done some shamatha, you can then either on your own or with, in the hands of a skilled teacher, be guided to re-engage your mind and start, kind of start to look at it. And so if something were to come up, some idea, you could ask yourself, well, where did that come from? And actually start to peel back the layers and be like, oh, that came from this little unresolved issue I have with my parents. Wow, where does that come from? Oh, that comes from... And there's this way that you can start to peel back the layers. And that in Buddhism is called vipassana. 
A, a key vipassana is the relationship between desire, or wanting, craving, and suffering. That's the key link, right? That's the holy truth of Buddhism, that the clinging, the wanting, the desiring causes us suffering. So most of the time, vipassana is actually looking at the mind and being, oh, wow, I'm suffering. Well, what am I attached to? What am I clinging to that's causing me to suffer? So you see that it's an active you know, this is not passive. You're actually actively thinking about these things. But the idea for Buddhists is that you need to do the calming down so that your vipassana is sort of clear-eyed in a way. So you can really see it. And what I kind of often like to say is that, you know, if you really just excelled at, sh- at sh- the calming down, but you had no vipassana, you no insight, then you, you kind of reach this exalted state of a rock. Where a rock also is just sitting there. A rock, too, is just not feeling, not thinking. So, you know, if you're sitting there and you've made it to some exalted samadhi where you're no longer thinking or no longer feeling anything, great, you're a rock, right? So just shamatha with no insight, you're left a little inanimate, right? But then if you were to just do insight, just do like, oh, let's peel back the layers, let's peel them all back, woo, and never do the calming down, you know, maybe this is philosophy or something, or maybe this is, you know, it's just thinking about stuff, but with no action and ultimately no release, no liberation in that sense. But the two together, well, that's the magic formula, right? So if, maybe you've heard that before, but if you hadn't, it's helpful to know that that's sort of what's going on. So somebody asked me at the end of last week, so was, were we just doing Vipassana or were we doing Shamatha, like Dhyana? This is where it gets tricky. The Dharma talks that we're doing that I'm about to deep, deep dive into right now, I'm talking about ideas that are very deep. And because we're talking about them and thinking about them after having just done a Shamatha meditation, this is Vipassana. We're looking at some ideas and we're going to really think about them in the hopes of kind of like coaxing the mind into some new situation, right? But I want you all to know that this is kind of weird or unique in that I'm not actually trying to guide us into a meditation and then a meditative state on infinite space or tonight on infinite consciousness. I'm not that skilled of a meditation teacher to do that, right? I can lead a nice breath awareness meditation and then talk for days about these things in a Vipassana way. So I want you to know that traditionally these four formless realms are actually part of the calming down. (laughs) As crazy as that seems, because last week got a little wild thinking about infinite space, and it was probably a little stimulating and didn't seem very calming. And I'm saying, yes, it wasn't. We, we were doing a little more of a Vipassana-style analysis of these things. But I want you all to know that traditionally, this is how it goes, right? We have all the billions of things on our mind, the past, the present, the future, all this stuff that, again, is causing us grief and anxiety and stress for, just because we have too much, Right? And so we begin the process of letting it all fade to the background, as I suggest. Just let it all fade to the background and let one thing. I'm suggesting the breath, but I mentioned last week there's 40 Buddha-approved 
objects of meditation. Candle flame's one of them. Image of a Buddha's one of them. The breath is number one, actually, because it, it's with you wherever you go. So it's great. But there are these various objects or concepts, like a, a blue disc, there's various objects and concepts that the Buddha said, yeah, yeah, you can rest your mind on that. You can put your mind on that. And that's a good thing. The breath, the Buddha, candle, flame is a good thing to rest the mind on because it allows the other stuff, the other ideas, the emotions, all stuff to fade away. They're good anchors, right? And now here's, what's hap- here's what happens, is that if you can lock into your breath, can of flame, the Buddha, whatever, and really begin to get rid of all the other stuff and just be left with the one object, you begin to move into a state of, uh, a meditative state that the Buddhists would call dhyana, right? And there are typically four stages of dhyana. And I quickly said this last week about I kind of have gone with this vertical ascension metaphor. I want you to know that in the sutras, sometimes the Buddha's doing a deep dive. And he's saying like, yeah, like, you know, rest your, your consciousness on the candle flame, but let the candle flame give way to something like infinite space and you'll go deeper. So in some sutras, the Buddha uses this analogy where we're going deeper. Deeper, deeper. Sometimes it's used the analogy of going up to the heavenly realms and we're going this way, all right? I don't know. Up, down, sideways. But the idea is, is that these four dhyanas begin with this moment in which there is this kind of um, a blurry union between you and the object. With, again, breath, candle flame, or the Buddha. starts to be this blurry union. Now, we're not fully one with it in this first jhana stage, but there's just this blurry oneness with it, right, where you're in it. And that first jhanic state is said to be marked by great joy, happiness, and what's called a discursive mind, that the mind is aware that it is in this state. It's like, whoa, this is weird. Look, it's just me and my breath or me and the candle flame. Wow, right? And then that gives way to a second jhanic state, which is a little more just content. You're not so joyful, like ecstatically joy. You're just content, but still with the discursive mind. You're like, oh, wow. Then there's this movement to a third jhanic state, which is also content, feeling really nice, but no discursive thought. There's just the content feeling without the person being like, wow, I feel really content. There's just the content feeling. And then finally, this fourth jhana called upeksha, equanimity, in which there's really this kind of unifying with the object. The breath and you totally become one. You and the candle flame become one. And there's a real loss of sense of self, a dissolution of the self. And this kind of merger, right? Before I go into the next four stages of this and do our review of space, I I just want to take another moment to talk about dhyana. And all of these are dhyanas, by the way. These are just progressively deeper states of it, right? I was playing ping pong the other day. I was playing ping pong with my wife. And we're pretty equally matched. I'm not a very good ping pong player. She's a pretty good ping pong player. We go pretty back and forth. 
And we were playing ping pong the other day and we got really into it. And I fell into a Diana, full on. And what I mean, and, and I say that because we all do this and I just want to sort of take this idea of Diana or Jana and bring it a little bit out of the ether of the heavenly realms and bring it down to like our actual everyday experience, right? So I'm sitting there, I'm, I'm playing ping pong, right? And we're going a few games, and then there's a game, it was like the third game, and I mean, it was hot, it was hot. You know, we were neck and neck, 11, turn, you know, back and forth, back and forth. And there's that moment, you know, where it's like, you, it's, you're all eyes are on the ping pong ball, and all of a sudden, right, uh, what we just had for breakfast, gone. Where we're going for dinner, gone. It's just here. And so there's this first initial uh, mindful moment where all the other stuff disappeared. And it was just this kind of blurry union with the paddle and the ball and, and noticing actually that, that my, 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 what do you call that, stroke or whatever, but the, that my stroke was, was starting much earlier than I thought. Like I thought it would be like the ball's here and I'm like, oh, better hit it. But I began noticing in this kind of slowed down state that I was getting ready to hit the ball when it was still over in her court. And I was like, oh, wow, that's interesting, right? And so this kind of, you know, they call it flow state or whatever in sports and all this stuff. That's what they're talking about. You've probably experienced this outside of meditation. This kind of weird state where you all of a sudden lose kind of track of time and space because they're not there because you're so focused on something and there's an odd disembodiment that happens with it, right? Because that's what I was feeling, this kind of outer body experience. But I'm me. I'm, I mean, I know this is happening and I'm talking to myself being like, oh, wow, like, you know, so that's the discursive mind, but joyful that I was in this kind of dionic state. And, you know, who knows how many dhyanas deep you can go in ping pong. I don't know. The idea is, is that entering into dhyana in a seated meditation is a little more like stable, uh, safe ground to do that, right? So I just wanted to give you a more tangible idea of dhyana, that it is just this kind of losing oneself in something and then thinking like, wow, rather than an intense ping pong battle, I could do it with just observing my own breath. Wow. Well, that's what they're talking about. First jhana, second jhana, third jhana, fourth jhana, upeksha. Question? Yeah, well, so that actually made me really curious, the ping pong example. When, when you get into this kind of state when doing an activity, like playing a sport, like, do, do the factors set in in the same order? Is there like, well, I noticed it's different for me. Yeah, I, 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 I as well, and it's actually... It's a complex topic I don't want to get too into because we got, we got consciousness to talk about. But <laughs> I will say this, though, that in experiencing these things in other areas, ping pong, skateboarding, what have you, and then in experiencing them on the mat, as they say, I kind of basically realized the merit of experiencing them on the mat in, in the sense of their stability that in other areas I, hear, I, I too have experienced, they come sort of weird and ultimately, I don't feel like they're very sustainable. Like, so they're kind of like this satori, a glimpse at it. But I think for sustained practice and ultimately for like progress, it's, it's helpful to do it this way. But I do just want you to know that I don't think this is the only way. 
and that when people get into the, you know, the proverbial runner's high or whatever it is, that I'm of the school of thought of like, yeah, those are geonic states. It's just a, a question of like, again, how far could you go in a ping pong battle in enlightenment? Because there's a lot of other stuff going on there, right? Whereas there's not a lot of other stuff going on here. And if you've done the dhyana right, there's nothing else going on. So, yes? I just wanted to back up for one second hmm? the question I had. So the shamatha implies that there's more of a kind of somatic awareness going on as a way to help, you know, the insights arise and watch that. And that's more kind of mind. So what about heart-mind? Where does the where do the Brahma Viharas come in? I mean, you just mentioned one with your Pekka. Mm-hmm. So, hmm. uh, yeah. Um... I mean, just on that note, let me just, I'll say this as well. Part of the, 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 the beauty or the genius of the Shamatha Vipassana combination is the idea that, so if this, this uh, noble truth of desire leading to attachment, right? The, the things that we desire and want causes us suffering. This is a noble truth. My understanding is, is that if I were to go running out in the street to a bunch of people that have not meditated and tried to explain that to them, their heart mind and mind mind would be like, what? Who's this guy telling me what to do? Or whatever it is. The idea is that in a non-shamathic state, we actually cannot hear the Dharma. We are too emotional or we're too intellectual or whatever it is. And so we battle it. Versus having just sat for a half an hour and then somebody says, you know what? The things we want are causing us suffering. That mind can be like, you know, there's something to that. And then meditate on it and then maybe have a Vipassana insight about it. So I don't you know if that helps. That the Brahma Viharas are these four states of being or uh, practices of dhyana, but they are actually traditionally Vipassana where the first, the metta, the loving kindness, this is an actual re-engagement of the mind, as I was saying, where one actually visualizes the extension of the heart or, or the extending of compassion, karuna, and then mudita, out. So the idea being that these are more active, which leads me back to my formless realms. So in this upeksha, this equanimous state where the object that you started with, whether it was your breath or candle flame or the Buddha, that object has brought you to a state of equilibrium, of upeka or upeksha, right? I'm going to revisit my example from last week because I think it's really helpful to, to keep this in mind. All my analogies tonight are based on this. So if you weren't here last week, I was working with an optical illusion that everybody last week had seen, so I'll do another show of hands, there's an optical illusion, which is an image, and depending on the way you look at it, it's either two faces looking at each other, or there's, it's actually just an image of a glass, like a wine glass. Everybody familiar with this? Mm-hmm. Anybody not familiar with this? Great. So if you think of that image of the two faces, but then, oh no, just the glass. So the way I introduced this last week very quickly was that the general Buddhist view of this, the way we experience the world, is in these three sheaths or these three layers. The realm of desire, 
the realm of form, and then the formless realm. That's where I keep trying to get us every Friday night, the formless realm, right? We start in the realm of desire, the kamadatu, right? If you keep in mind that optical illusion, the way I describe the kamadatu, the realm of desire, is that the, the, the Buddhist point of view is, is that the realm of desire is that when you come across that image, depending on your mental formation, your sanskaras and your samya and all of that, I, I use the example that if you were someone who you, you really have been looking, you're on you know, dating sites all the time, you like really want a partner. You're really lonely, you really want a partner. When you see that optical illusion, what are you going to see? You're going to see the two faces looking at each other because you're looking for somebody to look at you. But then you have somebody who's, they're in a relationship, the last thing they need is somebody else, but what they need is a drink, right? <laughs> love, you know, I love a glass of wine right now. And so when they see that image, they're like, ooh, just what I wanted, a glass. The other person's like, ooh, just what I wanted, two faces, right? You do realize, of course, that it is neither a glass nor two faces, but to this person's mind, it looks like that because it's what they want. And this person, it looks like that because it's what they want. So what they are seeing is actually their desire. <laughs> that is the kamadatu. And if I didn't say this last week about this optical illusion, this is the optical illusion. The world is the optical illusion. And the kamadatu is seeing what you want to see. Now, oh, yeah. But also very much what you don't want to see, like, you know, the aversion. You know, when I go into the room, it's like I feel attracted to him and to her, but also based on my past, I don't feel him attracted. I don't feel her attracted based on my relationship. So it's, I feel like... It, it's sort of the same one or the other in a way that, you know, whether it's like I'm going to see the glass because I don't like people, so I never see faces. It's, it's sort of the same. We see what we want or what or we avoid what we don't like. It's the exact same idea, right? But now imagine that you've done some shamatha. Imagine you calmed your mind way, 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 way down. And I'm talking about like retreat after retreat after retreat and really gotten it down to a nice dionic state, the idea of, oh, and by the way, the, the dhyanas I just listed, the first, second, third, and fourth dhyana, those are called the rupa dhyanas, the, the dhyanas of form, just form. So realm of desire, realm of form, formless realm. What is the realm of form? That's when, through the mind of dhyana, you are seeing that optical illusion, but you see neither a face nor a glass. You just see the form, literally the form, without you projecting any desires onto it. Now, that doesn't make you an idiot, and so you can be like, oh, yeah, I see the glass, I see the faces, but do you see the birds and this and that? I mean, it could go on forever to a mind that's liberated in terms of form. The idea is like the clouds or whatever, you could see anything in them if you want, right? So that's sort of the interesting thing about the realm of form, okay? But you kind of see that subtle shift between the realm of desire where you're seeing what, what you kind of want it to be versus not having the desire and then just being able to see the shapes. Everybody understand, see what I'm talking about there? So the four dhyanas, the four, first four dhyanas, are in the realm of form. So they're in a realm of form. 
This is why, this is why in the dhyanas, there's still like a you and there's still the candle. But the meaning of the candle and the meaning of you, the desire, the wanting is gone. In a proper dhyanic state, there's still the object in the form of it, but it has lost its, you know, its desire in that sense, right? The thing that I kind of, I don't think I really got across last week is that if you use the candle flame as your object, right? That candle flame is like your optical illusion. Again, in the realm of desire, you're seeing what you want. In the realm of form, you will see just the form of it. And then we get to the first formless jhana. Akasha, space. Sometimes translated as infinite space, but just because the word akasha is so crazy, you have to add infinite in front of it. It's just actually the akasha ayatana. And ayatana is a base, a foundation. And what I mean, why I do this gesture is because the candle flame was your, is your ayatana. Or your breath is your ayatana. It's the base, the focus of your meditation. Akasha, vijnana, consciousness, what we're going to talk about tonight, hopefully. Nothingness, and then neither consciousness nor not consciousness, the fourth stage. Those are all ayatanas. And what I didn't really get across last week, and I feel like people were asking it of me, the idea is, is that if it's the candle flame, the candle flame of the realm of desire through the calming of the mind gives away, gives way to the candle flame of the realm of form. Same, same thing, but my mind's different. So I'm no longer seeing the desire of what I want. I'm just seeing the candle flame, right? As we move deeper into the formless realm and we enter into the, the ayatana of akasha, of space, infinite space, there's a, scent, there's a way in which the object of your meditation is still the candle flame, but the candle flame in the realm of infinite space. I'm going to clarify, I promise. But I just, what I was sort of making not clear last time was that it's not that much your mind moves from your initial object and now meditate on space. It's not that you shift from one object to another. It's actually that your initial focus gets so intensely deep that you actually, through the candle flame, through your breath, through the Buddha, you slip kind of into this deeper ayatana, this deeper foundation of infinite space. And then infinite consciousness. So let's back up to our optical illusion, right? The main thing that I tried to get across last week about akasha or space is that we are not, the Buddha is not talking about outer space. How many times I have been confronted with people who have the image that after the fourth jhana, after Upeksha, they're an astronaut in outer space. And they're like, infinite everywhere. Look, it's space everywhere. That, if that's the image that comes to your mind, is that if I go deep enough with my dhyana, it'll be like just me floating in the outer space. It's not at all, at all, at all, at all, at all, at all, at all what they're talking about, all right? 
So what I tried to do last week, and I'll try to spend uh, you know, a few minutes on space, and it's necessary that we understand what space is if we're going to understand what the Buddhists mean by consciousness. All right? So let's go back to our optical illusion of the two faces in the glass. Right? Two faces in the glass is the realm of desire. No faces, no glass, just the shape and the form. We're in the realm of pure form, right? So here's where it gets tricky. So starting, (laughs) this stuff is so hard to articulate. Starting with the shapes, right? How, How you know, how you could even imagine that those are two faces is because of the space. If, if, they were, if there was no space between them, right, you, you, you couldn't conceive of them. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's quite basic and simple what I'm saying, and I mean it to be, because space is actually that subtle. So... Start with that one, that we're in the realm of just form where there's the shapes and then the, whatever the, the darker line is that's separating it all. I want you to keep in mind that the, that the mind, the consciousness, the vijnana that we're about to talk about can, can conceive of faces and glasses or even can, can conceive of shapes because of space, room. That's what space is. It's actually this really subtle, profound idea because it, it's not a thing. It's, it, it, space is like a, the idea of a, like what? Like, a, like room. Me, me like, like room. Like to have enough space, to have enough room. Is room something? Not a room, but room. Space, is it something? Well, from a Buddhist point of view, it's not a thing. It's actually what allows there to be things. Because again, if there was no space, it's kind of like your singularity concept or whatever, that all things would be in the the same location at the same time and therefore indiscernible. Right? I'm going to give you a slightly another example. This one may not work. So last week I tried to do this one, but it was at the end, and, and it, it didn't go over very well. But it was about this, <laughs> it was about this clock, right? So I mentioned that it's interesting that we have this one word for this one thing, right? Or should I say that the one word gives us the idea that it's one thing, Right? And so within this monolithic one thing, there's just, there's the clock, and oh, over there's the bowl, right? But as I've said so many times, you know, all evidence to the contrary, it's not one thing. There's a little lid. So here's what I, this is, this is it. (laughs) If we're really going to move into the realm of infinite space, of Akasha, this is, this is all the best I got tonight. (laughs) So, if, if clock, right, no space, all right? But what I want you to see is, is that if you are going to let go of the arbitrary label of clock, 
and actually start to be like, oh no, there's some batteries in there, there's some gears, there's some digital electronics. All of that is going to require space, right? Because now all of a sudden, this, for it to be the little live thing, to be its own thing, you need to, in your mind, to create space to, ex do you, does anybody understand what I'm saying? <laughs> Right? You need, but it's a just mental space, right? Not like physical space. It's just that in order for your mind to be like, oh, you want to talk about, you want to talk about all the things? Hold on. Okay, let's talk. Because via, via space, I now can talk about all the little things. But that required space. Did everybody follow me? Can I uh, please comment to see if I am following? Yeah, yeah. I see. I I see a clock. I, there is a clock. But in order to talk about the lid of that clock or the battery of that clock, I have to let go, or or I have to. There has to be space between me and the clock. Well, there's certainly. Well, no, there, that's a good one too, though. <laughs> In order for there to be a clock at all, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, keep going. This is we're in the samadhi of of akasha right now, of really trying to conceive of this, and I really want you to see that it's like, you know, the reason why this can't be there, right, is because there's no space. There's this is this is there. This is occupying this space. And so, oh, this can't occupy that space, right? But just like you were doing, what if we want to talk about the batteries and the gears and all of that? Aren't they in that space? And so all of a sudden, there's space that allows for there to be the things. Space is what there allows for there to be things. This is why I often talk about space as an allowance, that space is what allows for there to be this. But what I want you to understand, this is what I said last week, is that space is the canvas of the mind. It's what the mind gets to throw on and be like, oh, look, clocks and bowls. is because of space. And again, the mind is able to do that of, of, like, of, the, of the space. And I, what I want you to see is that it's almost like if we go back to this, that it's this magical production of batteries and gears out of space. Because <laughs> a moment ago, they weren't there. They were all kind of bound up in the clock, the one clock, which was occupying the space. But now if I want to talk about the batteries, again, I got to kind of go like, right, and create space. But not space in here, space in my mind. Because my mind takes space and then gets to fill it with things. That's why I say it's like the canvas of our mind, right? Yes. This is a mind <laughs> There is this example here, I'm sure you know about it. It's an example of um, also the observer is the observed and the object. So it's the um, example where I'm going to the cinema, you know, the screen, the screen gives form to the characters on the screen, you know what I'm talking about? Kind of, maybe. Yeah, and the projector, so what's the mind, and by the end of the story, everything is mine, right? But my question is, if you know the example, if not, then forget it. Mm -hmm. Is space the screen of the example? 
Yeah, I mean, in that example, that's a great example, probably better than my canvas in a certain way, but it's the same idea. But I don't get too carried away with it being the screen or the canvas because we don't want to turn it into anything. Because as soon as it's something, we can then take it from over here and put it over there. And space is not that. Space is this mystical element of reality that they used to call ether, that it was what, again, allowed for there to be anything. But it wasn't anything. Can I try another? Yes. Uh, and this is just a, a, a tool. I'm not trying to make it into thing, but yeah. just to make sure I try to understand it. Say if we thinking about the numbers and like a, <laughs> a, a fraction, of one one divided by two. Mm-hmm. That lower number, it has to be um, if it would. It, has, it can't be zero. Zero would be the fact that, uh, let's see, the denominator is space. Meaning like it, eh? do you know? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like if it, this is, and again, I'm make, making it into a thing. That's not part of it. No, like, no, but if it helps us in order to be okay. the, In order to, would it be like, a, if I say, um, Having a number that's not zero on the bottom is is like having space, because without uh, a non-zero, mm. if it were zero, you couldn't there couldn't be a top number. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or something like that. Yeah, I think you're. You in, I, I do feel you. I feel <laughs> like you're right yeah. in that way, but I don't want to commit to that. Right. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But you're. I think you're. It's an interesting example. Yeah. Thanks for the validation. <laughs> No? I can't remember if the, I said the exact same thing last week or not. <laughs> but it was just this idea that like if a candle is still the object of meditation, yep. and the candle, it's the realization that the candle can't be there without there being the space for it. I'll use that word again. And that's the space is, is, is the... It's not the object, but it, it is is the, it is implied by the existence of the candle. Yes, it's in fact it it's has a candle. no, but it's implied by the existence of everything. Yeah, and that's of yes of anything. Yeah, of and that all kind of ties together with this. Better. Yeah, 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 and it's this idea that it's this. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I'm with you. I'm with you. Yes. <laughs> I like all of this. I liked it last week. I like it again this week. Yeah, yeah. And I really liked the door one. The door one last week. So the door one, is, which is the bowl one. So the door one I mentioned was, so there's this famous quote in the Tao Te Ching, which is that it, um, it takes a, a fired earth to make a bowl, but it's the, the emptiness or the vac- this that it makes it useful, the, the space that makes it useful. And the second stanza of that same verse is that it takes uh, wood and nails basically to make a door frame, but it's the space that makes the door useful, right? And I mentioned this interesting thing about, oh, so what is a doorway? A doorway is space, right? It's not the jam. I'm going to hit my head if I run against the, the frame, right? But the actual door itself is is space, right? And so, isn't this a door right here? Isn't there one right here too? And right here? Isn't, aren't there doors everywhere? Then, 
Thanks. No, right? If you understand that the, what a door is, is space, aren't there doors everywhere? But it's not just space, I don't think. Oh, what is it then? It's space with a, some kind of confinement. It's being um, defined, you have to define by something. Yes. It's a combination of the space and the door dynamic. Yes. But when you're, when you're adding like interdependence, but it makes it possible, interdependence, right? But aren't you then in the realms of Vipassana already? In the realms of? Vipassana, Vipassana. in the Samadhi of Vipassana, instead of... Vijnana. Huh? No. Vipassana. Vipassana. Oh. Yeah. The moment you start analyzing it in terms of interdependence, what it makes... Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And that's why I said that this is Vipassana. We're doing deep dives in our own minds. We're not calming down at all right now, in that sense. Yeah. Yes. Can it be as simple as just the three-dimensional aspect of the reality that we live in? No, 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 no. And I, I want to drive home a deeper point about this space. If we're going to understand what the Buddhists mean by vijnana, vijnana, as an ayatana, as a base. So I'm going to keep driving this for a few more minutes on the space, and then I want to flip it to the, the consciousness, right? So. How about the example of space, um, the space in between two thoughts? No, I mean, another one I gave last week that might along those lines help is this idea that, you know, it's this idea that if there wasn't any, um, like if, all time was happening at once, it wouldn't be perceivable. It's actually the space of it all that allows it to be perceived. But with space in between two thoughts, it's really not like defined in time. This is no. what I want to drive at with this space thing, though, is that it's this really subtle aspect of the mind, consciousness in particular, and it's actually like a... Mm, It's this really weird thing, or at least from a Buddhist point of view, of how consciousness works, like what it is and how it works. And what I mean by that is, is that this, um, again, if, if you remembered or you were there with me with this clock idea, right? And that is when we were talking about the one clock, the one clock occupied this space. And so this thing couldn't get in that space because it's occupying that space, right? But if all of a sudden I want to start talking about the batteries and the gears and all of that, it will require space, meaning the batteries now to need to be disambiguated from the clock. So you they, as a mental construct, not as a physical reality? Well, as a necessity of mental constructs. Not as a mental construct, as a necessity of mental constructs. I hear you. I hear you. Yep. So... We've been talking about space, and we're going to talk about consciousness and then nothingness. Yeah. And it's just getting me curious, working it backwards, almost like, like thing, there's no like inherent thingness. It's like our consciousness that is projecting thingness in this realm of space. Okay, so the, the, the Vipassana question was great. I should have seized it at the moment. Yeah. Again, here's the idea. If we were doing this as... Shamatha, as a pure dhyana practice, and I wasn't up here yapping away, right? 
The whole goal of this, as I said at the beginning, was that we have a bunch of stuff on our minds split over time, past, present, and future. And the whole practice of dhyana is an anchoring of the mind to try to bring the mind to being aware of only one thing, candle flame, breath, some one thing only, all right? But to arrive at an upekshik awareness of just the flame. I gotta break this in front. Sorry. To arrive at this upekshik awareness of just the flame, me and the flame, that's just the, the starting point because I don't have now the future. I don't have the past. I barely have a sense of myself anymore. It's just me in this form, right? So I'm in the realm of pure form, right? What this practice is all about is that this particular candle flame is still a highly complex idea object. Definitely all four elements are at play. Um, All kinds of stuff is still going on. And so what the goal of this type of meditation is, and again, like spoiler alert, this is where it goes. We are trying, this is the, ma- this is the science, the magic of Buddhist meditation. As when you're down to just the one thing, that one thing has all kinds of lakshana, qualities or characteristics, right? That, it's like, it's dancing, it's got color, it's got a shape. This is all just in the realm of form, Right? So it's got all these lakshana, qualities or characteristics. A lot of them, actually. The practice that we're doing, this dhyanic practice that goes into the formless realms, is about, okay, now that we have one thing, we're going to start taking away lakshana. Because that's too many still. That's still causing me stress to have all of those lakshana, all those qualities. And so I keep removing them until I'm left with space, the space that is allowing that to be created out of my mind to understand what it is, to understand the lakshana, all require space. They they require it. And so if you were following my my clock, and again, I I didn't do any magic trick here. When I said, let's talk about the batteries, and you were like, oh, okay, and your mind needed to make space, I, I want you to understand that that whatever happened there, that magic thing that didn't happen, because nothing happened, yet everything happened, right? Mm-hmm. It happened because of space. So space is this kind of underlying quality of everything, kind of, sort of, not really, but it's there. And so what happens is, is that my meditation on the one object which leads to the one thing with all the characteristics, eventually gives way to just the space that's underlying it to begin with. My mind needs the space in order to make sense of it. It's how discrimination or discernment happens. Is because, again, go back to the original optical illusion. If those two faces were too close together, you would never see two faces. There would never be two faces. It's the space that allows there to be the two faces. It is, there, it is the space that allows there to be a flame. And so if you go deep enough with your dhyanic concentration on it, 
you can give way, you can let go of all the characteristics and be left with just the underlying akasha or space that is necessary to create it. And what's great about space from a Buddhist point of view is it has very, very few characteristics. In fact, we're in the formless realm now. It doesn't even have form, shape, color, graspability. It actually only has a certain degree of rationality in this, what I keep calling its allowance. That's its, it, the, 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 the lakshana of space, the, the characteristic of, of space is that it allows. That's what it do, it allows. And so your mind can now just rest on that idea of allowance, that idea of space, which again is everywhere all the time. In fact, it's what allows your mind to be like, oh, look, a room full of people sitting on chairs doing their thing. All of that is because you're all popping out of space. If there weren't the space, again, we would all be on top of each other. Right? But again, think of the clock. Think of the clock that it's just that when it was solid clock, it was that. And then when you let go of solid clock and you were just concerned about the other things, oh, look at all that space now. It was there all along. But your mind, calling it a clock, wouldn't allow the space to see it. Everybody follow me? Yes. Yes, and then... still have the characteristic of shape. In the realm of form, we had shape. When we're in the formless realm in space, we are meditating. The flame gave way to infinite space... And we are now on, as an ayatana, we are now on the... Everybody last week kept asking me, like, are we meditating on the concept of space? And I kept having to remind everybody, we're past upeksha. We're past the dissolution of the self and the merging with the object. So even before infinite space, there was a oneness with the flame. I am the flame. The flame is me. Then that gives away to space, because remember, the one, there needs to be space for there to be me and it, right? So now, the infinite space, which is everywhere all the time anyways, and it's actually what allows our consciousness, the vijnana, it's what allows the vijnana to make sense of this world. Again, if there wasn't the space between the two faces, the vijnana, your consciousness, wouldn't be able to see two faces if there was no space. So there's this really intimate relationship between space and consciousness. Like really, really, really intimate. And so, get ready. What happens is, is that Vijnana, Vijnana, was meditating on the candle flame. Vijnana, my Vijnana, my consciousness... Meditating on the candle flame, miraculously was able to get rid of the lakshana of the candle flame and to be left with just space. So now you've got vijnana, vijnana, discriminative awareness. Meditating on, sort of, kind of, space, because space is what allows for a vijnana. So what happens if you let go of even the space? And it's just the discriminating mind. That's the new ayatana. Just the discriminatory mind. 
with no object and not even the space. Because the space is what the mind was making the world out of. Then I got rid of the space so I am left with just discriminative awareness. But not of anything. Just discriminative awareness. You're still looking at the candle flame? We left the candle flame a long time ago. But we used the candle flame to get us to a still state of mind. And then we went deeper into it until the very... You know, you, you know, for everybody that comes to my Sunday classes, reflect on the deep dharma here about, about how do you know that's a candle flame? You know it because of these characteristics and these qualities. But remember the dependent origination, which is the way in which we are fooled by the products of our imagination. Right? That's the whole game, is that there was the, the illusion of me and the illusion of the candle flame. Now meditating on each other, using the candle flame to transcend the illusion of the self, to transcend the illusion of even the candle flame, the subject-object illusion, and to arrive at, oh, Upaksha, infinite space, but again, not outer space, just the realization that it's all space that then my mind is making order of. Then what happens when I take away the space that my mind is making order of? I just left with just the mind, just the vijnana, just the vijnana. And this is where you get to the second formless realm of infinite consciousness, which many people sort of, I've, I've heard teach and I've heard people describe again as the sort of floating in, in outer space, but now I'm like floating in a sea of consciousness or it's kind of like a weird state where all is consciousness or something. Back up. It's not what this is about. We're resting our attention on the candle flame. It's, it's driving us to the still state of mind so that even the candle can give way to just the empty space or the, vac- the akasha that's allowing it to be produced. And then I get rid of that and I'm left with just the discriminatory mind with no object. So yeah, call it infinite because that's all there is now. But don't go floating off into some cosmic mind state. It's still very um, um, calm. It's still very uh, meditating on the candle flame, meditating on space, meditating on consciousness. Like, that's what the, you know, but again, this is really hard to describe because if we were doing this, we would be in a very deep non-dual or practically non-dual state of being. So, yes. Um, I have a couple questions. Sure. Why? Like, what's the whole? <laughs> yep. I just have a headache now. Yep. <laughs> you know, I always get a headache when I was, not that I don't love that, but, and then... Yeah, I guess why. Yep. <laughs> and like talking about it doesn't seem like I don't. Yes, like talking about it, I don't really understand the purpose of that. I mean, obviously, we're just talking about it because Dharma talk. Yeah. <laughs> and have you actually done? Have you actually experienced these realms? Yeah. So all the questions kind of wrap up together. This question was actually last asked last week 
and it allowed for me to actually speak on that. So I'll do it sort of backwards. So traditionally, these are meditative states. So in the Theravadan, Pali-based, Vipassana tradition, or just the mindfulness tradition, the, it's, these states just get deeper and deeper and deeper. And so from the outside, you're this. But from the inside, it's just getting deeper and deeper and deeper. Uh, more still, more still, more still. That's a Theravadan way to think about these. And I don't not think about them that way. But I also think about them in a slightly Mahayana way, which is that I understand these samadhis, as they're also called, the samadhi of infinite space. My Mahayana point of view is, is that when we were deep in it, there was a, a peak moment tonight where we were deep in infinite space. And our minds were like, ah, and some people were like having flashes of insight. For me, that is the samadhi of infinite space. To actually be like deep in the thought of it and that when one is touching it, like actually having it, congratulations, you made it to the samadhi of infinite space. And so the talking about it in a Mahayana point of view or reading about it from a Mahayana point of view is what brings it about. Not necessarily the long sustained periods of meditation. Now, why would you want to do that? The sutra I'm reading this Sunday answers that question. But I, because he's, the Buddha's teaching it to somebody that basically says, why would I want to stop thinking? Like, huh? And so the Buddha basically, you know, that's the gist of the sutra, so I'll kind of summarize it. Yeah, this is a big summary, right? <laughs> to the... To the uh, attached, clinging mind that delights in the things of the world, yeah, that's, it's going to seem completely absurd that not thinking would be a happy place. But actually, what this sutra, what the Buddha eventually arrives at saying is, is that that's a joyful, happy place. So that's the point, a joyful, happy place. Joyful, happy place. To actually be joyful and happy. So you're in the realm of the whatever, the no consciousness. Mm -hmm. But if you're trying to get to a happy... No, 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 no. The, again, the idea, going back to the very beginning of the Dharma talk, is, is that we are suffering and we're unhappy because of the million things on our mind. Yes. And if we could bring it down to just a few or even one, it gets like exponentially or progressively happier, more joyful. It's like an equation. Million things, suffering. One thing, joy, or something equivalent to it. It's like a chart. And so this idea is, is that to go even further, like, and this is really what it is, is that only to be on one thing is, is as I've said, not the end goal. That has too many lakshana. If we get down to just one characteristic or quality, and then eventually, again, I'm going all the way to the end here, we let go of even that. So there is the cessation of thought entirely and yes to the discursive mind that is death a nightmare why would anybody ever want to go there but for the buddhist and for those who have been there that is joy suffering and release from suffering is in that state and i would also like to point of view from a from a mahayana point of view the, the idea is to sort of like like a hawaii to go to those places to enjoy them but to come back not to stay 
in these deep samadhis because there are yogic traditions where the goal is to stay in these deep samadhis. And then if you can actually make it far enough, you could just leave this behind, meaning the physical body, and you'll be good. The Buddha is not talking about, the Buddha is talking about you go to these places to calm the mind down, but you come back here and this will be better for having been there. That makes sense. That's the idea. Yes, always. Yes. I think you're... Yeah, 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 actually. So what stage is then you're entering not self and nothingness? Is that... You know... All of these things, this came up a little bit last week. I'm not, I, the way I, if you've never sat in classes with me before, I try to do this real broad brush trying to cover like all forms of Buddhism, but not a form of Buddhism in particular while respecting all forms of Buddhism. And so what came up last week is that regarding the four jhanas, the four formless realms, in some schools there's very specific markers of when you're in one, when you're not in one, very specific time periods, very specific, all kinds of things. Others, like I mentioned, like the Zen and the art of archery, and the word Zen is just the Japanese word for dhyana, and so it should be dhyana and the art of archery. And in dhyana and the art of archery, Eugene Harrigal or whatever the guy's name is, he was not talking about these gradated four-step and this. He was talking about a union with the bow and the arrow and the target and all of that. That's a long-winded way of saying, according to who? Like, when does no self happen? I don't know. I actually think it's a very slow, gradated process of almost like a film that's removed. And it's not like one makes it and is like, oh, I did it. It's actually like you just keep going to these states and the self kind of gets cleared out in that way. So... Technically, I guess, Upeksha is supposed to be a pretty dissolved self-mode based on its traditional presentation, but again, that's just like one traditional presentation in which Upeksha is defined as a dissolution of the subject-object relationship, thus the word equanimity, equal. But that's just one school. Yeah? I want to put you uh, on the relation between um, space and consciousness. So... In the ultimate sense, space is always present, right? It's not going in. Because like at one point you're like it's gone or it's not there. It's always present, right? So it's one thing I wanted to clarify for me. And then the second thing, um, um, space doesn't give consciousness, it doesn't birth, so to speak, consciousness, but it gives allowance, right? So I get that. Um, is it could you say that comparison because I'm a very visual person obviously? Could you say, there's often also the example about the ocean and the wave of the ocean in Buddhism, could you say that space is the ocean and the wave is consciousness? That's a great opportunity to speak of the relationship between, you call it discrimination or discernment. So vijnana, and I didn't actually say this, that the word vijnana, the root of it is jnana, knowledge, and it's vijnana. And vi means split, divided. It's a divided consciousness, meaning, and I take that to mean it's a discriminatory consciousness. And by discriminatory, I mean being able to discriminate this from that. And again, how do you discriminate this from that? Space. So the discrimination act depends on space 
And the wave ocean is a great example of that because if you think about the surface of the ocean, it is the discriminatory mind that will say wave, wave, wave based on the space that appears between them when they're actually all ocean. They're all ocean. But what allows your discriminatory mind to distinguish one wave from the other? The space in between them. Space is what allows for discrimination. Do you see that relationship? That's the subtle, that the the mind, in order to to discriminate, to discern one thing from, from another, needs to create space between them. And by create, of course, I don't mean like tinker and manufacture. I mean needs to, like, just like the clock. In order for you to all of a sudden access the stuff, you need to, quote, create space in your mind. Space that's already there, by the way, like you said, it's everywhere. It's, again, it's the canvas that the mind gets to discriminate out of and start saying, oh, person, 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 in a place, under a roof. That all requires space to create these ideas. Isn't that actually what we bring with us from, like when you're saying we go to the States and come back? The space is sort of what we bring. Because whenever anybody asks me, like, well, what do you get out of meditating? I'm like, well, there's like more space. Like I always, that's my, my answer. Like, there's more space. Absolutely, and this should be, this should make you feel like uh, looser. Like, because, well, (laughs) this this really magical idea of space that is somehow everywhere and nowhere, it's, quote, out of space that the mind can discern and create all this in a sense by chopping it all up. And so for me, there's a way in which that becomes all of a sudden very like, whoa, this is real anything could happen then kind of thing. Like it, it feels less constricting than the rigid reality of things and objects. And it should. That space, like I, last week I mentioned it uh, at the beginning of the Dharma talk as vast open awareness because the mind is not saying face, face, this. The mind is not saying candle. The mind is not saying self. The mind is broad and vastly open. So... I want to understand exactly what you're saying, and I feel uncomfortable if I do not know exactly what you're saying. Is that desire? <laughs> oh yeah, totally. Let go of that. Totally let go of that. Yeah. Thank this you. is Buddhism, man. Yeah. This is this is. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that great question. So it's been a long time since I uh, studied semiotics, but in the way that language, there's signs and then there's symbols, and so there's like pointers to meeting, mm-hmm. right? And then there's the container that kind of holds the meeting. Mm-hmm. So could you possibly extend the analogy to language itself? And, and of course, there's different types of language. There's just kind of communication, you know, mm-hmm. that glass of water. And then there's storytelling, where there's a narrative. And mm-hmm. then there's another type of language, which is poetic, which you have, you can have an experience of, I think, what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a flash, or it's a, it's a movement into a different type of realm. But the language is actually, however it's arranged, it's actually kind of guiding there. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know, I'm just kind of wondering if you have anything to say. Uh, yeah, on that note, just because it's late, I won't dwell on it too long, but just to bring it back to this idea of that it requires space 
for the mind to discriminate or discern and make sense of the world, think of um, um, a, a long string of letters in which the words have not been spaced out. Right? Now tell me what it says. It will require space. And again, that space doesn't need to be physical. Like, if you know what I mean, like, so. Last question. Last question. And that is um, kind of like reality, like atoms and subatomic particles that has been propounded by either Marvisi or some of the new uh, quantum physicists that, that, that um, it's conscious, that the, it's pantheism. And it's like, mm. so going securitously back, like all of this reality is conscious and I'm meditating on that. Yeah, it's space, but it's like all, all this, and, and it's, it's, you know. Yeah, I would, I would encourage you just on that note to end this little Dharma talk. That, like with space, I, I, I was advising not to go up into outer space, but also it's not about uh, space, and and I'm meditating on space because the subject-object relationship is gone. So what we're talking about is a meditation. In, like, in space, on space. Consciousness. And then meditation, like, in consciousness, on it, but not like consciousness is over there and I'm over here and I'm meditating on it. And that's why with, with space, I use this term, allow, that space is an allowance, it allows. So the meditation would actually be on the feeling of allowance, do you know what I mean? Not turning it into a black void or something I can conceive of. It's, a, it's allowance. And then if you understood everything tonight about the necessity of that allowance so that the vijnana can make sense of it and then get rid of that and you're just left with the sense-making, discriminating-ness, and then that's nothingness. Nothing, nothing. <laughs> so what a sales pitch for next week we're not going to be talking about anything <laughs> talking about nothing so I hope you can remember.